recently, Pastor Obadiah touched on the subject of the false rapture theory. So I thought it would be good to delve a little deeper into that subject today. <clears throat> and so uh, I'm going to talk on the subject of thy kingdom come. And I'll begin by reading the words of a favorite old hymn of yesteryear. This was a hymn that was found frequently in hymn books in the 19th century, but not found in any that I can see today. It was called the Pearly White City. There is a holy and beautiful city whose builder and maker is God. John saw it descending from heaven when Patmos in exile he trod. Its high massive wall is of jasper, the city itself is pure gold. Its citizens fair and white raiment, mine eyes shall its glory behold. No sin is allowed in that city, and nothing defiling nor mean. No evil that city, oh, no pain and no sickness can enter, no evil that city has seen. Earth's sorrows and cares are forgotten, no tempter is there to annoy, no parting words ever are spoken, there's nothing to hurt or destroy. No heartaches are known in that city, no fears and no griefs e'er are told. No sadness or sickness or envy shall tarnish the streets of gold. The saints are all sanctified holy. They live in sweet harmony there. My heart now is set on that city, and someday its blessings I'll share. In that bright city, the pearly white city, I have a mansion, a harp, and a crown. Now I am watching, waiting, and longing for the white city John saw coming down. Reference to uh, Revelation 3, verse 12. So with that poetic introduction to the kingdom of Elohim, we'll begin our presentation with a quotation from Yeshua's words in Matthew 6, verse 9. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth. He spoke this during his Sermon on the Mount in a special prayer which serves as an example for our own prayer life. We should pray and understand that Messiah's kingdom will come to fruition right here on planet earth. Yet how few Christians today truly believe his words and even fewer understand the meaning. So let's together examine the scriptures concerning Yeshua's return and unravel some of the confusion that exists concerning this important event we all await. Messiah's return will have four distinct aspects, which are little known in modern church popular teaching. These are first, that Messiah's return will be visible and audible, not a secret and silent rapture. Second, it will be a single stage event, one event, not two separate stages, separated by three and a half or seven years. They can't even agree on, on the timing of that. Third, that Messiah will return after Christians have endured tribulation, not before. And fourth, that Yeshua HaMashiach will reign here on earth and will not remove the church to planet heaven with him in a secret rapture. So we're going to take a look at facts and fantasies concerning Yeshua's return. And our approach will be twofold. We'll review what the Bible does teach about the second coming 
and then contrast this with popular modern teachings, uh, especially those known as dispensationalism or futurism, a system of fantasies not supported by scripture. The apostles asked Yeshua, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And that pertinent question has echoed through the centuries as Christians ponder Yeshua's return. In reply, our Savior explained in Acts 1 verse 7, it is not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father has put in his power. But Messiah knew our growing desire to understand more about the kingdom of Elohim and its coming to fruition. And so he presented some essential truths to us in the form of kingdom parables, what I call kingdom parables. I use that term to emphasize the scriptural fact that the parables of Messiah relate not just to the ethereal spiritual matters, but to actual future earthly events spoken of in Bible prophecy. One of the most important and revealing of these parables of the kingdom was the parable of the tares and the wheat found in Matthew chapter 13. Messiah began his discourse in verse 24. We read, Another parable put he forth unto them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like unto a man which sowed good seed in his field. But while men slept, his enemy came and sowed tares, or weeds, among the wheat, and went his way. But when the blade was sprung up and brought forth fruit, then appeared the tares also. So the servants of the householder came and said unto him, Sir, didst not thou sow good seed in thy field? From whence then hath it tares? He said unto them, An enemy hath done this. The servants said unto him, Wilt thou then that we go and gather them up? But he said, Nay, lest while ye gather up the tares, ye root up also the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And in the time of harvest, I will say to the reapers, Gather ye together first the tares, and bind them in bundles to burn them, but gather the wheat into my barn. And then Yeshua answered, uh, Then Yeshua sent the multitude away and went into the house. And his disciples came unto him, saying, Declare unto us the parable of the tares in the field. He answered and said unto them, he that soweth a good seed is the son of man, the field is the world, the good seed are the children of the kingdom, but the tares are the children of the wicked one. The enemy that sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are the angels. As therefore the tares are gathered and burned in fire, so shall it be in the end of the age. The son of man shall send forth his angels, and they shall gather out of his kingdom all things that offend, and them which do iniquity and shall cast them into the furnace of fire. There shall be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Then shall the righteous shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. Who hath ears to hear, <coughs> let him hear. Let us analyze the meaning of this wonderful parable. The 20th century New Testament Bible translation of Matthew 13, 38 says, by the good seed is meant the people of the kingdom. That's pretty clear. We, you and I, are good seed, kingdom people. The tares, on the contrary, are the wicked. The enemy of the parable who sowed the wicked are adversaries working and teaching against biblical truths. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are the angels. Let's now focus on the tares for a moment. Who are the tares today? 
By comparing various Bible translations, we can get at the nuances and shades of meaning found in Matthew 13, 41. The King James Version speaks of the tares as all things that offend. American Standard Version says all that cause stumbling. 20th century states all that hinders. Weymouth says all causes of sin. Phillips says everything that is spoiling it. Moffat states all who are hindrances. Beck says all who lead others to do wrong. But perhaps my favorite translation, favorite rendering of them all, is the Weymouth version of Matthew 13, 41. It translates this verse, and all who violate his laws. Yes, these are the wicked in the sight of Elohim. All things that offend, that cause sin and stumbling, that hinder righteousness, in a nutshell, those who make a practice of violating Yah's laws and teach others to do so. The end of all such wicked is given plainly in Matthew 13, 40. Just as the weeds are gathered up and burned, this is what will happen in the close of the age. Uh, the Good Speed translation. Please note that although we may get impatient with the wicked, the events will occur at the end of the age, not today, according to Yah's timetable, not ours. Matthew 13, verse 42 continues, The angel shall cast them into a furnace of fire. There shall be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Yes, the wicked will have tears and bitter regret for what they have done. Whether the lake of fire is remedial or not is beyond the scope of my talk today. I believe that it is remedial, but we can all agree that those teaching and practicing unrighteousness shall meet their appropriate divine punishment. After this separation and removal of the wicked, we are told, then shall the righteous shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. Matthew 13, 43. The wicked are removed, the righteous remain, and the kingdom of Elohim shines forth on this earth. The Apostle Luke tells it this way, Yahuwah Elohim will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. Luke 1, verses 32 and 33. Just as David's throne was on the earth, so too that eternal kingdom of David's greater son, Yahushua HaMashiach, will be on this earth. At this point, we should be able to take what we've learned from all these prophecies and give a cogent definition of the second coming of the Messiah. The second coming is a single, individual, post-tribulational advent of Messiah to this earth to bring salvation to all believers and retribution to all unbelievers. In other words, Messiah's return will be one event, not two returns separated by a period of three and a half or seven years. It will come after the church endures great tribulation the righteous will be rewarded and the wicked punished. This is the teaching of the scriptures. But that still leaves the question which is on so many minds today as it was on the disciples' minds almost 2,000 years ago. Tell us, when shall this be? And how can we tell when you're coming back and the world will come to an end? The Christian world was set astir a few years ago when a Christian mathematician and Bible teacher Baptist Bible teacher named Edgar C. Wisenick wrote, 
the, a book which predicted the return of the Messiah in September 1988. He had figured it out from the scripture, he said, to the very day, emphasizing that, quote, it cannot happen again in all the world's history, a direct quote. Obviously, his prediction was wrong, for that date has passed, and uh, he took his quarter of a million dollars he made selling his book, <laughs> passed uh, from history. Um, but the basis of his system of calculations remains very popular even today, and is known as dispensationalism or futurism. At one time, it was a little-known theory on the very fringe of Christianity, but in the last century it has swept into prominence to become one of the leading systems of prophecy in the Protestant world, uh, in America, and throughout the world. Few are aware of the origins of that system. According to Dean Henry Alford, in his book, The New Testament English Readers, quote, the founder of this system, Futurist, in modern times appears to have been the Jesuit Ribera about 1580, unquote. Let's briefly examine the background to that system of prophecy. Since the time of Messiah, Christians have been interested in prophecy and its fulfillment, especially interested in those who of truth are the Bible prophecies, warning of a great harlot, the antitype or opposite of true religion. In Revelation 17, verses 1 through 4, we read, The great harlot was arrayed in purple and scarlet color, and bedecked with gold and precious stones and pearls, having golden cup in her hand, full of abominations. This prophetic harlot was identified with an important city. We read, quote, and the woman whom thou sawest is that great city which reigneth over the kings of the earth. Revelation 17, verse 18. The Holy Roman Empire, centered in Rome, did rule over the kingdoms of Europe and the Near East, the known world at that time. Another prophecy in 2 Thessalonians 2, and verse 4, tells of a religious imposter who is likened to an important man, a leader in Yah's temple. It says, who opposeth and exalted himself alone above all that is called Elohim or that is worshipped so that he as Elohim sitteth in the temple of Elohim. Contrary to much popular preaching today concerning the Antichrist, scripture demonstrates that he would not be a single individual but an organization or a system, many individuals. John writes, as you have heard that Antichrist shall come even now there are many antichrists, by which we know it is the last time. And of course the last times are the period between the first and second comings of the Messiah. The whole period uh, called the church age is called in the scriptures the last time. The historic Protestant position is best summed up by the scholarly Magdeburg Centuries, an encyclopedic work published in 1574. This work was long considered the definitive word on Protestant thought. It states, the apostles teach that Antichrist will not be one person only, but a whole kingdom of false teachers presiding over the temple of Elohim, that is, in the church of Elohim. This once famous Protestant encyclopedia pointed to a very, a very serious finger at Rome, the established church, and those who hold to her doctrines. It convincingly showed that Roman, Romish doctrines and traditions were false. In desperation, the Romish authorities looked for a theory that would seem to fit the scriptures and would let the Roman church off the hook. 
That theory came at last with the pen of Father Francisco Ribera, who published his views a little over 400 years ago in the year 1593. And he wrote a commentary on the apocalypse of Revelation. Ribera was forced to admit that the scriptures concerning Antichrist did point to Rome. So he maintained that it was either a past or a future Rome, not Rome today. Here are his own words. Babylon is Rome as she once was under the pagan emperors and as she will be in the end of the world, unquote. Ribera attempted to push the prophecies of the book of Revelation off into the dim distant future and thus the foundation of modern futurist thinking was laid. In a nutshell, here is how the doctrine of Antichrist espoused by Protestants and Catholics in the 17th and 18th century compared Protestants uh, taught uh, compared. Protestants taught that the Antichrist was a system of false doctrines and practices which would rule for a period of 1260 years. That its leaders would claim to be Christians, that they would rule from Rome. In opposition to this, Ribera and Catholics taught the Antichrist would be a single human being who would rule only for a brief three and a half to seven years in the unknown, unknown distant future. That this individual wouldn't even be called a Christian and would reign from Jerusalem. Obviously, no matter of concern to us today, the time of fulfillment is still far, far away. And so we've had the case in uh, time of the Second World War, they were all saying that Mussolini was the Antichrist, and after he was out of the way, then they said that, well, it was the European common market <laughs> was the Antichrist, and then uh, when the Jewish ADL complained that that was anti-Semitic uh, to be saying uh, that the Jews were the Antichrist because they started teaching that the Antichrist was a Jew of the tribe of Gan. So uh, they stopped teaching that and now some of them are teaching that the Antichrist is a Muslim. So it changes garb from a Christian to a Jew to a Muslim and they just continue on their way with their false theories. Protestants, however, continue to be opposed to accepting any Roman Catholic doctrines. So the Catholic scholar Emmanuel Lacunza contrived a plan around the year 1800 to publish a book on prophecy under the Jewish Christian pseudonym Ben Ezra. And he did that deliberately to deceive because with Protestant interest in the Jews running very high, they would snap up the book, eagerly read it, and be ripe for conversion to Roman Catholic thinking. So uh, if a Roman Catholic wrote something, they weren't interested, but if a Jew wrote it, oh, it's the chosen people, we gotta, gotta look at this. And that's exactly what happened. Lacunza's book, titled The Coming of Messiah in Glory and Majesty, was published and republished in many languages, in many lands, including America, within the space of a quarter of a century. The Pope helped out by including it on index of prohibited books, which made Protestants even more eager to read it. <laughs> they know what they're doing. Probably the first Protestant writer to succumb to Brebert's theories was Samuel Maitland, who adopted Futurism about the year 1820. Very soon after, scores of other Protestants published books and articles promoting the Futurist view. They include the famous John Henry Newman, who actually converted to Roman Catholicism, later becoming a cardinal. In Port Glasgow, Scotland, in the year 1830, another strange event took place a Scottish Protestant girl named Margaret MacDonald claimed to have seen a vision that Messiah's return would be in two stages, 
and that view was soon expounded by others, including John Nelson Darby, founder of the Plymouth Brethren sect. And uh, this church was originally built by uh, offshoot of the Plymouth Brethren, called the Raven Brethren. At the famous Albury Park prophetic conferences held in England in the mid-19th century, prophecy writers gathered to round out the details of their new theory. They thought that a three and a half or seven year period, they weren't sure which, would intervene between two second comings of Yeshua. Christians would be raptured off the earth secretly and silently before that period began. Then an individual antichrist, a world dictator, or a political superman would rule in Jerusalem, persecute the Jews, and himself be destroyed by Messiah at a third return with his church. There were many disagreements among these early futurists, but one by one, church congregation began adopting their novel doctrine. And historic St. Michael's Church in Holbeck, England was one of the first. Where does futurist doctrine come from? Much of their belief is based upon their own interpretation of just one short passage of scripture, a few <coughs> verses found in Daniel chapter nine, beginning at verse 24. Seventy weeks are determined upon thy people to finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, and to make reconciliation for iniquity, and to bring in everlasting righteousness, and to seal up the vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. So this verse lists at least six things which our Savior Yeshua, Messiah, fulfilled by his life, death, and resurrection. But pre-tribulationists pre uh, agree with us this verse is speaking about things fulfilled by Yeshua, Messiah. Three verses later, Daniel continues to relate the work done by the great person of this prophecy. And he shall confirm the covenant with many for one week, and in the midst of the week he shall cause the sacrifice and oblation to cease. Now Yeshua HaMashiach did accomplish this also, for as the one great sacrifice rendered all other sacrifices obsolete. And religious sacrifices have indeed ceased, even among the Jews. But the futurists switch logic and insist that this verse was not fulfilled by Messiah, but will be fulfilled in the future by an Antichrist. Nowhere in this verse, nor in this chapter, nor in fact in the entire Old Testament, does the word Antichrist appear. Yet they read it into the text of Daniel as if their theory were a word-for-word -word gospel. To hold their followers in this deception, they've created their very own Bible, intertwining their theological inventions side by side, page by page, with the written word of God. In this way, the Schofield Reference Bible has misled untold millions in this century. Very little, in fact, is known by the average Christian about the author of the Schofield Reference Bible. Cyrus Ingerson Schofield was born August 19, 1843, nearby in Clinton, Michigan, in Lenawee County, and brought up as, he said, a nominal Episcopalian. He moved to Tennessee before the Civil War and fought for a year in the Confederate Army. Then he became a lawyer, was appointed United States Attorney for Kansas, and swore an oath that he had never taken up arms against the United States. This, of course, was ranked perjury by the former rebel soldier, but Schofield never seemed to concern with honesty. Six months later, he resigned in a scandal caused by his accepting uh, of blackmail money from crooked politicians who had helped to escape prosecution. While on the question of honesty, 
even as taking upon himself the title Doctor of Divinity is questionable because research by Schofield scholars indicates that he never received such a title from any known reputable institution. As historian Joseph Canfield, uh, a researcher, has stated, if the degree is false, consider the brazenness of a man who placed a false degree after his name on the title page of an edition of God's Holy Word, unquote from the incredible Schofield and his book. The further adventures of Cyrus Schofield were reported in a newspaper article, The Daily Register in Topeka, Kansas, August 27, 1881. The article refers to Schofield as a shyster and peer among scalawags, that's a quote, who was responsible for a rash of check forgeries for which he was convicted and served six months in jail. Once out of jail, he claimed in his autobiography to have been reconverted to Christianity by a client one day in his law office in Kansas. Yet he was never licensed to practice law in Kansas or anywhere else. Regardless, the next act of this newly converted so-called Christian was to abandon forever his wife and four little children in Kansas and move on to Texas to be ordained. The Apostle Paul wrote, if any provide not for his own, especially for those of his own house, he has denied the faith and is worse than an infidel. 1 Timothy 5 and verse 8. Schofield made millions of dollars off his Schofield Reverence Bible, but his wife and four children, according to researchers, never got a dime of the money. That label of worse than an infidel, unfortunately, applies all too well to Schofield, who subsequently not only became engaged to a young lady in Texas, while still married to his first wife in Kansas, but even backdated the date of his second marriage in his autobiography to hide the true facts. Much more could be said about Schofield's rather colorful life, but suffice it to say that his lifestyle was not that of a consecrated servant of Elohim. Our real interest in all this is in its effect on his own theology and in turn in its profound effect upon the Christian world. Looking at all these problem areas in his life may give us some clue as to the reason for his heavy emphasis on being free from the law. That's very important. He's had a lot of influence on the Protestant churches today. Free from the law, oh happy condition, they sing in the Baptist churches in their hymn book. In simple terms, this teaching means that thanks to grace, Christians do not need to be too particular about their moral behavior. It's also important to note that Bible verses which deal with his own breaches of moral and civil laws receive no comment at all in the Schofield Reference Bible. Briefly, these offenses include a false oath of office in 1873, bribes taken in 1874, abandoning his family in 1874, fraud and forgery in 1877, failure to pay debts in 1879, his divorce secured while already engaged to another woman in 1883, falsely claiming a doctor's degree beginning in 1892, a false story about receiving a, a wonderful Confederate war decoration <laughs> both in 1902, which he never received, and adding to the word of Elohim in the publishing of the Schofield Reference Bible in 1909. Even after the large royalties rolled in, Schofield never performed restitution to all of those he defrauded and wrote in his, that his first wife and four children completely out of his autobiography and out of his will. Perhaps Schofield unconsciously penned his own indictment when he himself wrote in 1910, 
Conduct in the long term springs from character. A bad man does not habitually do good actions, nor a good man habitually do evil actions. We all know these things. These are very familiar to us." Unquote. Nevertheless, as a result of the tremendous influence of the Schofield Reference Bible, thousands of churches and many denominations through our land echo the futurist theme and the anti-law theme. We're not under the law, we're under grace. You can see how his lifestyle fit into the, his theology, which is now taking over the theology of the Protestant churches. Messiah's return is imminent. We're just waiting for the rapture, and Bible prophecies will only take place after we're gone. Covering their eyes, they see no saints in great tribulation, no antichrists in the world, no mystery Babylon ruling anywhere, no earthly kingdoms coming to fruition, and no earthly reign for Messiah's church. In short, many Christians have been blinded to all the great Bible prophecies for our own day. Could there be a more pernicious doctrine as one which so deceives Messiah's own church into ignorance, apathy, lack of concern for Torah law and morality and neglect of duty? In a typical modernist church today, much of Bible prophecy is ignored on the basis that it concerns only non-believers left behind after the rapture. Movies abound with fictional characters, fictional plots, and fictional theology, all supposedly based on the Bible. Much emphasis is given to the so-called secret rapture of the church. We're told that the wicked are left behind on earth while the meek are in heaven. <laughs> and this is, of course, nearly the exact opposite of what Messiah taught and what the New Testament teaches. The meek shall inherit the earth, Psalm 37, 11, and Matthew 5, 5, double witness. While we are supposedly removed to heaven in a rapture, the unbelievers remain here and rule over planet earth under Antichrist leadership. It's unscriptural baloney. In fact, what they're teaching is that unbelieving Jews do not need Christ, do not need Messiah to be saved, and they will inherit the earth because they're God's chosen people, and Christian believers will be raptured off the earth to planet heaven or somewhere in heaven anyway. A key verse misused by the futurists to promote a secret rapture is Revelation 4, verse 1. It says, After this I looked, and behold, a door was opened in heaven, and the first voice I heard was, as it were, a trumpet talking to me, which said, Come up hither, and I will show thee things which must be hereafter. And immediately I was in the Spirit. The futurists latch onto this verse as being proof of the rapture, in spite of the fact the Apostle John was the only one told to come up hither, and he was living in 90 AD, not the end of the age when the rapture was supposed to take place. John says he was in the spirit, so it's probable that his experience was not a physical movement of any kind. Nevertheless, this flimsy, feeble reasoning on just one verse of scripture is their entire basis for consigning all prophecy in the book of Revelation, except the first three chapters, to a future time after the rapture. One has to be reminded of Messiah's statement concerning the Pharisees, that they strain at a gnat and swallow a camel, Matthew 23, verse 24. In order to avoid some major contradictions with the Bible, these modernists have chopped up the scriptures concerning Yah's people into four parts, with separate prophecies for each. The elect, the church, the saints, and Israel, which are all terms for us. They've divided into four different groups of people. According to their theory, the elect are Jews who accept Messiah after the rapture. The church includes Christians before the rapture, 
and saints are non-Jews who accept Messiah after the rapture. And of course, New Covenant Israel only includes, uh, includes only those of the Jewish religion, they think. Verses of scripture which contain these terms are then divided up. If you're a member of the church, then you're not one of the saints, nor are you one of the elect, nor an Israelite. And of course, all four gospels themselves belong to a prior dispensation, over and done with, and are therefore interesting to us, though they are not for us today. The entire futurist approach to the scriptures is with a meat cleaver to cut, chop, and tear away at it till the average person is confused and bewildered about Bible prophecy. <coughs> By now you probably suspect that I'm not very happy about all this foolishness, but it is important to know something about this system in order, in order that we might effectively do some badly needed evangelism among its adherents. You need to understand where they're coming from. Unfortunately, one problem you'll encounter is that even future scholars can agree among themselves on numerous points of their theology. Therefore, it's no wonder the confusion and argumentation result among futurists themselves. At, at one prophecy conference at a fundamentalist church I attended some years ago, I was told by a member of the congregation sitting next to me that I had the devil in me because I couldn't agree with this particular viewpoint on the timing of the Lord's return. Let's move on to take a closer look at the teaching concerning a pre-tribulation rapture, a belief known as pre-tribulationism for short. You might have wondered if there's so much disagreement among future scholars as to the rapture, when it will be, who will be in it, where it will be taken, who will be left, then why in the world do they emphasize it so strongly? Especially when they, there are no hard Bible facts to support their teaching. Why indeed is the rapture the central focus of the religion instead of Messiah's kingdom itself? Why does there even need to be a removal of Christians from this earth at all? Just why is this one prophetic issue so important to them? The answer to all these questions can probably best be seen in a passage of scripture found in Revelation chapter 7. In verse 3 we read, We have sealed the servants of Elohim. Here we see mention of Elohim's own special people, and they are called his servants. Most Bible scholars seem to agree that these spoken of are quite evidently Christian evangelists, people of the Christian religion who are actively serving Yahushua HaMashiach. The next verse continues, And there were sealed 144,000 of all the tribes of the children of Israel. Here we find evidence that these servants of Elohim are called children of Israel. That's us. <laughs> but when the futurists look at this verse, it gives them a big problem. They believe that Israel under the new covenant includes Jews only. And if the Christian servants Elohim has in the end time are all Jews, where in the world are all the non-Jewish Christians going to be when this prophecy is fulfilled? Sitting back and doing absolutely nothing for Elohim while the Jews evangelize the earth all by themselves. <laughs> The only answer can be that we non-Jewish Christians must be gone somewhere. And that is exactly what they teach. Since they believe that the Jews alone are Israel under the new covenant, and the Jews will evangelize and inherit the earth at the end of the age, therefore we non-Jewish Christians must be gone. Gone in a rapture to the ether of space, either heaven itself or to Jimmy Swaggart's planet heaven out in the edges of the solar system somewhere. This, in a nutshell, is the basis of reasoning for the rapture doctrine. Therefore, we may say that pre-tribulationism in general is a false theory 
based upon the confusion concerning Israel and who Israel is under the new covenant. The truth is that Israel has been augmented to become a spiritual, physical people under the new covenant. Instead of two separate peoples of Elohim, the Gentiles have been engrafted, Romans 11, verse 17, to become one joint people, Ephesians 3, verse 6. This understanding dispels myths about the second coming. It's as simple as that. As a result of modern confusion over the new covenant and new covenant Israel, many prophecies have been made revolving around the date 1948 and the forming of the Israeli state in Palestine. In the early 1950s, it was popular to teach that God's time clock does not run while the Jews are out of their homeland. Messiah will return seven years after the Jews established their state in Palestine. Well, that was 1948. 40 years later was 1988. But the year 1948 continues to be very popular in date-setting schemes. Another great prediction was given by best-selling futurist author Hal Lindsey. He stated, within 40 years or so of 1948, all these things, the rapture and revelation, could take place. This was stated in the first edition of his bestseller, The Late Great Planet Earth, but taken out in later editions, <laughs> for obvious reasons. The rapture is claimed to be seven years before the revelation. So the rapture would have occurred in 1981, and the millennial return of Messiah in 1988, in case any of you are missing relatives. This idea of adding 40 years onto the founding date of the Israeli state is also the real basis of Edgar Wisenant's date-setting scheme. Of course, none of these dates have ever proved true, which ought to convince us that pre-tribulation is a, indeed false doctrine. Prophetic dates based upon the false assumption that New Covenant Israel excludes Christian believers will never see fulfillment. Is false doctrine and the false date setting it inspires a matter for concern? In Deuteronomy 18.22 we read, When the word spoken by the prophet is not fulfilled, it is not a word spoken by Yahuwah. The prophet has spoken presumptuously, do not hold him in awe. The prophet Ezekiel adds in chapter 13, beginning at verse 1, Say to those who make up prophecies out of their own heads, can you deny that you have only empty visions, that you utter only lying prophecies? In an interview published in the magazine Christianity Today, the April 1977 issue, author Hal Lindsey was asked, but what if you're wrong? Lindsey replied, if I'm wrong about this, I guess I'll become a bum. So perhaps we could call dispensationalism bum theology. <laughs> uh, Unfortunately, each time a date is proven wrong, they simply re-edit their books and continue on their error-filled way with picking new dates, never abandoning the dispensational system that is a source of so much false prophecy. How prevalent is false teaching in our day? Messiah prophesied in Matthew 24, verse 11, and many false prophets shall rise and deceive many. A great multitude of false teachers of prophecy will arise among Elohim's people in the media and in the churches, just as we see happening today. And this week I received a postcard in the mail from a local Baptist church inviting me to celebrate Yeshua's resurrection with an Easter egg hunt. <laughs> Nothing here about Yeshua, it's all about Easter eggs. And of course, the Easter eggs 
all go back to Ashtaroth worship. And the word Easter itself comes from the word Aster or Astaroth. And so when they're celebrating Easter, they're actually celebrating the pagan religion of, of Ashtaroth, pagan Canaanite religion. And so uh, it's a free a, a Easter egg hunt and more, it says. Life Point Baptist Church. Um, got that this week. So we have Messiah's own admonition about the falsehoods in our churches today. He said, Mark well, I have given you warning. Matthew 24, verse 25, Knox translation. So again I ask, is Messiah's return secret and silent? We've shown that it is neither. Read again the text of 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 15 through 17, as it speaks of the Lord descending from heaven with a shout or cry of command, with the archangel's call, and with the sound of the trumpet of Elohim. Yes, the scriptures plainly tell us that Messiah's second coming is visible and vibrant, showing and shouting, eye-catching and ear-splitting, in sight and in full cry. With a visible and audible return, our Savior, Yahushua Messiah, shall come to establish his earthly kingdom. Even so, come, Lord Yeshua. Amen. Amen.